Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Contractors probably know as much about the risks to national security as the Defense and Homeland Security Departments. My next guest says the federal acquisition system, though, hinders those departments from obtaining what they really need. Larry Allen is a longtime federal sales and marketing consultant. He joins me now. And Larry, you're saying the acquisition system is kind of in the way of what everyone knows the government needs. Tell us more. Tom, my concern is that while the acquisition system today is focusing on things like socioeconomic benefits and trying to do everything through the acquisition system, whether it's Uber compliance, cybersecurity, all of these things are important, but they also all have their place, Tom. And that place is not to hamstring the efficient delivery of critical systems. And as you look around the world today with regional conflicts in the Mideast, uh, brewing trouble in Asia, you've got Russia involved in Ukraine. I think this is a time when the United States needs to wake up and say, hey, you know, all of these perceived goods through the acquisition system are really secondary or should be in terms of focus. What we should be focusing on is being able to meet the potential threats that state and non-state actors bring to us and have a more efficient acquisition system so that our national security agencies have the tools they need to protect us. There are a lot of requirements for cybersecurity of those contractors, for what they do in terms of their labor practices and diversity hiring, and what they do with respect to carbon emissions. I guess if you have omelet days for your employees and use those little (laughs) gas-powered hot plates, you're going to be in trouble. I'm joking, sort of. But is this the kind of thing you mean that just hinders competitive bidding on reality of what the government needs? Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, I think there are a couple of impacts of today's acquisition system and kind of the sideshows, if you will, that uh, we're, uh, we have to jump through. One of those is that it reduces competition, uh, even as the administration wants to increase it, particularly among small businesses. Look, small businesses don't have the bandwidth to jump through that many hurdles. Even if you're a larger business, you can provide the things that government asks of you, but the government acquisition system itself is moving more slowly than it should be because we have to look at all of these side issues. And as I said, I don't mean to say that they're not important. They all have their place. Unfortunately, I think that place is now up at the front of the line where it really shouldn't be. At the front of the line needs to be efficient acquisition. Look at commentators around the U.S., Tom. You see a lot of them saying that we haven't faced these many threats since the 1930s, and we need to make sure that we're not caught flat-footed, and having a better acquisition system is really central to that. Could you maybe comment on what seemed to be two canaries, if you will, in the mineshaft of procurement. One is that even though slightly more dollars go to small business year after year, the number of small business vendors is shrinking. The roster is shrinking, even as the government tries to encourage more people to come in. Well, that's the first one. Well, the first one, I think you have to understand, I think there's a tendency in government to look at 
small business as a monolith. And small business is not a monolithic entity. There are different types of small businesses. So what you see when you look at the government sales data that goes to small business, you see a lot of successful small companies that get the bulk of that business and a lot of newer and other small businesses that don't. So look, are our small business numbers going up incrementally? Yeah, that's great. But that money is going to really a a cast of usual suspects and then some other people who happen to be close enough to that cast of usual suspects. They're the supporting cast, if you will. And that's what we get. You have professional small businesses who are dedicated to the government market and professional large businesses. And those are the ones that have the resources and also don't have any choice but to invest in the never-ending stream of special and unique requirements to do business in this market. We're speaking with Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the other canary I wanted to ask you about is the rising use of other transaction authorities, OTAs, which take place outside, of course, the federal acquisition regulation and the DFARS. So far, Congress is okay with it. Everybody's okay with it. I wonder what scandal is brewing out there in OTAs that we haven't seen yet, just having watched this market a long time. But is that another indicator that some things are not what they should be on the regulated side or the more regulated side? Tom, I think you're right on the nose with that. You look at the OTA use, it's a non-FAR-based acquisition method. When you look at other things that are uh, been heretofore used for kind of niche acquisitions like small business innovation research acquisitions, SIBRs, and then you look at uh, the Defense Authorization Act and you see that Congress specifically directed the Department of Defense for this fiscal year to look at more commercial solution openings, which is a OTA-like acquisition method. If you're looking for all of these ways around standard acquisition, you have to ask yourself, is the main acquisition highway just totally bottlenecked all of the time? And if it is, what can we do to ease those bottlenecks to get the acquisition traffic on the traditional roads moving more smoothly so that we don't have to have all of these workarounds that get us where we need to be? And speaking of that relationship between government and industry, you're also writing in this week about CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the FBI seeming under some coming rules to be able to get into the systems of contractors and look around in there. Tom, this is a proposed rule. The comment period on this proposed rule just closed. Uh, and even though the FAR Council extended the comment period, I don't think this is a rule that a lot of contractors have caught. As you said, this is a rule that would allow CISA and the FBI to look at uh, contractor uh, IT systems anytime that there is a cyber breach. And it gives those agencies almost unfettered access to contractor IT systems when there is a cyber breach. The concern is that anytime you give any agency or anybody unfettered access to your information systems, you know, there's no real way of controlling where they go. They're gonna go poke over here, they're gonna go look over there. And while the uh, they may be originally looking for, you know, what happened to cause the cyber breach, they may also inadvertently roll over some things. And look, we've also had incidences where people's personal information has been breached by the office in you know, by systems maintained by the Office of Personnel Management. 
you've got critical non-government contractor information in those systems for your commercial customers. I think that this is a proposed rule that contractors really need to pay attention to. And even though the comment period may have technically closed, go ahead, submit some comments, raise your concerns, make sure that people know that uh, this could be a real burden for you if, in fact, you think it's problematic. The rule is going to happen, even though they extended the comment period. They don't propose rules and then suddenly say at the end of the rulemaking comment period, gosh, you're right, we don't need this, and toss it out. There's going to be something, so you might as well get in on on what commenting is still left. Well, I think that's particularly true in an area where you're talking about cybersecurity, Tom. Cybersecurity is one of those things where people are like, well, we need everything we can get. Well, cybersecurity is really important. It is, but it's not just important for government contracting. If you're a company that sells both commercially and to the government, you have every right and your commercial customers have every right to make sure that the information you use and the conduct of your non-government business remains secure and it's reasonably safe from a government agency coming in with its camel's nose under the tent to sniff somewhere else and then either intentionally or quasi-intentionally sniffing down a road that was beyond the original intent of the rule. Right. Lord knows what people save on their C drives in the desktop folder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.